Conflict comes in all shapes and sizes, from classic world war to political struggles to domestic squabbles. And conflict, in the various ways it plays out, is a theme that movies have exploited since before Georges Méliès crashed a rocket into the eye of the moon. I'm Dan Webster, and on this week's edition of Movies 101, my co-hosts, Mary Pat Truthart, Nathan Weinbinder, and I will be looking at three films that focus on conflict. Following that, we will entertain a special guest who will do his best to get us all excited about the forthcoming Spokane International Film Festival. So don't touch that dial, because Movies 101 is coming up next, right here on Spokane Public Radio. The Movies 101 podcast is made possible by the members of Spokane Public Radio. Become a member at spokanepublicradio.org. Thanks for listening to Movies 101. Hi, I'm Dan Webster, film reviewer for Spokane Public Radio and blogger for Spokane7.com. And I'm Mary Pat Truthart, part-time film critic, full-time law professor at Gonzaga Law School. And I'm Nathan Weinbender, also film critic for Spokane Public Radio. And welcome to this week's unveiling of Movies 101, the show that gives a trio of movie fans the chance to indulge in their ongoing addiction to all things cinematic. This week, that shared addiction takes us into the past as we examine the biopic, The Iron Lady, in which Merle Streep portrays the former British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, in her later years. It will rivet us to the past, present, and troubled future of an American veteran of the Afghanistan war in the documentary Hell and Back Again. And it will, to paraphrase Kurt Vonnegut, cause us to become unstuck in time as we confront the timeless story of two married couples devolving before our very eyes in the stage play turned movie Carnage. Then, to close the show, we'll devote a few minutes to the 2012 version of the Spokane International Film Festival, which kicks off on Thursday. But first, let's tackle Carnage. And I will begin by asking the same question that the movie does. Namely, is it possible to be an adult when you are no more equipped to handle conflict, there's that word again, than your children are? Nathan? Well, the basic conceit of Carnage, which was directed by Roman Polanski, is pretty obvious. You have these two upper-middle-class couples crammed together in a New York apartment, trying to pretend that they're civil. And as the day goes civil on... Civil or civil? Civil. <laughs> as the day goes on, their attitudes regress, and they act like children. Of course, the irony here is that they're fighting over their children. One of the couples, played by uh, Christoph Waltz and Kate Winslet, has a son who beat up the other couple's son, uh, the other couple's played by Jodie Foster and John C. Riley. It's their apartment. They're crammed in it, sort of like a who's afraid of Virginia Woolf type situation where as the day progresses, the alcohol starts flowing, the cigars come out, there's vomit that is all over the, the coffee table. This is based on a play, a stage play, and it's very, very stagey, the movie is, by Yasmina Reza. I believe it originally premiered in Paris. So this is an American adaptation. It was on Broadway as well uh, with other cast members that are not in the film. This is a really simple film for Polanski, especially coming off of The Ghost Rider, which was the last film he did, which I thought was terrific. It's only about an hour and 15 minutes long. There's only four principal cast members in it. There's only a couple glimpses of any other actors in the movie. And for me, not being familiar with the stage play at all, 
this didn't really seem to translate very well to screen. I actually saw Carnage two times because I couldn't make anything of it the first time I saw it. It's kind of a comedy of manners or lack thereof. I didn't really find it particularly funny. I found it kind of shrill as it went on. And again, I found the conceit to be very obvious. And maybe it works well on stage where you're actually physically in the room with these people, with the other actors, all in one take. But this didn't quite make it for me. Yeah, I think that if I were in the same room with these people, it would drive me out of the theater very quickly. Well, I think one of the big questions is, I mean, this as a play got a lot of press because of its cast. And you had mentioned them in passing, but originally the roles were played by Jeff Daniels, Hope Davis, Marcia Gay Harden, and James Gandolfini. I liked Kate Winslet and Christoph Waltz here. I was less taken with the performances of Jodie Foster and John C. Riley, not because they necessarily did anything wrong, but for whatever reason, I couldn't see the two of them together at all as a couple. And as a result, that dynamic didn't work for me. So I think this play rises and falls on its casting to some extent. And that was a flaw, I believe, in the Polanski-directed film. I think the Polanski does a decent job of of opening up this stage play into a movie. I mean, and he films the whole thing, as you pointed out, Nathan, in this cramped little apartment. Yeah, they never get but, past the hallway outside. Right. They but, keep uh, but almost I ne- going but, into the elevator. But I never felt like it was static. I never felt like it was just a camera going back and forth. He was always moving the camera. You always got a sense of what was going on outside. I liked what Polanski did. I was less enthused with the story. To me, the story just never really amounts to much. You brought up Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Well, I mean, there's no hump the hostess. There's no bringing up baby. But there is definitely get the guest. But The movie considers and asks a lot of important questions about masked rage, about marital compromise, about what it means to be an adult. But it never even begins to answer those questions. So it just uh, left me. Another problem. left me bloodless. (laughs) Oh, whatever. Okay. (laughs) Good one. Um, The other difficulty with Carnage, I think, is, Nathan, as you mentioned, I believe it was supposed to be more comedic, that we as the audience were supposed to be looking at this group of people and saying, oh, please. But at best, it was painfully funny. Yeah, Uh, and they're very cartoonish, too. You know, Jodie Foster is this portrait of this sort of uptight, stuffy art historian, writer, or whatever it is that she writes about. She She's very concerned Darfur. about Africa, you know, but she's living in this yes. high-rise apartment in Manhattan or wherever the movie is supposed to be set. They're just very, very cartoonish. And like I said, I haven't seen the play. I don't know if either of you have actually seen it performed. No. Apparently, this material works very well on stage. I mean, it's gotten accolades all over the place. So the only explanation I have is that this is material that just doesn't really work on screen. I mean, you have one of the best directors possibly of all time in Polanski. You have a great cast and it just it's a non-starter for me at least. Well, yeah. And and the thing is, you can have a great cast. I mean, each of those people is an award-winning actor. So Mm -hmm. that's not the question. That does not necessarily mean that they're going to have good chemistry because I do think that Jodie Foster was horribly miscast in this. And that's why that couple didn't really work. I was actually more impressed with John C. Riley. I mean, I think he pulled off. He holds his own with three Academy Award winners. So, you know, he's been nominated, but he's never won any. Well, okay, that's enough of Carnage. In the second of this week's movies, we delve into the life of a North Carolina Marine who, wounded near the end of his deploy in Afghanistan, is forced to undergo numerous rounds of treatment for injuries, both to his body and his emotions. And throughout the process, the cameras of documentary filmmaker Dan Fung Dennis examines moments both poignant and painful. 
You know, one of the ironies of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan in terms of media is that while the military and the government has clamped down pretty hard from the old freewheeling days of Vietnam in particular on the reporting, you have to be embedded. It turned a lot of reporters into basically cheerleaders for the military. The irony here is that some of the best films that have ever been made about war, about the nature of war, about what it actually means to be in combat, have come out of both these wars. I mean, The Hurt Locker, in terms of narrative films, won six Academy Awards. Terrific film. But in terms of documentaries, what about No End in Sight, Restrepo, Taxi to the Dark Side, Control Room, The War Tapes? I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And while I don't think that Hell and Back Again is one of the best documentaries ever made. It gives a really good look at the story, at the experience of a young Marine, Sergeant Nathan Harris, who really near the end of his deployment is seriously injured to the point where most of us would never walk again. I mean, most of his hip is blown away by an AK-47 round. So here he is back in North Carolina, and, and one day, you know, he's walking through these wheat fields in Afghanistan, poppy fields, on patrol, and the next day, he's riding in a car trying to find a parking place at the local Walmart. And this is a movie that will speak to any veteran. Any veteran who has come from one of those situations to the next will go, yes, that is absolutely right on, because the one is a mental mind overload, and the next is a mind overload in a completely different way, because it's so normal, but it seems strange. So, And I liked what the director, Dennis, did in terms of artistically weaving together shots, both of Harris and of these other people, of other Marines, along with these mundane views of life in North Carolina. Yeah, what I found most interesting about uh, Helen Back Again was really the approach. Like you said, we've seen several documentaries already, high-profile documentaries about this particular issue. So I, I found the way that he went about this to be very interesting. I mean, there's almost no talking head footage. There's long stretches in this movie that are almost silent, in terms of dialogue, at least, people talking. And it's sort of the juxtaposition of the images that you're talking about, where here you have them in battle, here you have him at home, that I think are the most powerful. For me, though, what I thought was most interesting was this Harris guy, his interactions with his wife, they're both fairly young, they have to be in their mid-20s, and he comes out of battle, and there are many, many moments where we see him, he, he won't drop his gun he carries around a gun everywhere he goes he plays, he with, plays it with it like on the couch he's pretending that he's playing russian roulette with a real bullet in the gun while he has you know other people in the room with him and i found that to be really fascinating i wanted to know more about him and more about what was going on in his head we we get a pretty good idea of it but i think that would have made this movie a little bit more powerful for me at least but i found the approach to be really interesting i liked in helen back again the fact that our protagonist, Harris, is really just this basic guy. I mean, we see him in Afghanistan and he's trying to sort out all the political stuff and he's trying to deal with the locals. And he is in charge there in certain respects. Then he comes home and the roles are reversed. And so his young wife, Ashley, they don't have any kids at this point, is forced to do all these things for him because he's loaded up on a bunch of different pain medication and so forth. And I really did like the portrayal of their relationship. I'm not sure that it bodes well for the future of their staying no. together. It's just too traumatic, I think, for both of them. And I was fascinated by her character. Here she is, the young 
bride of this soldier. And then all of a sudden, she's the caretaker in the way that you would expect to have happen when you're at the end of your life or end of your relationship or so forth. I liked the flashback technique that was used here. I thought it worked very well. And overall, you know, I think this is a film that's worth seeing. Absolutely. So it's time to take a break. We've been discussing Carnage and the documentary Helen Back Again, Heroes and Movies 101. We'll be right back to talk about The Iron Lady and to take a sneak preview of this upcoming Spokane International Film Festival. So stick around. You're listening to Spokane Public Radio. And welcome back to this week's edition of Movies 101. I'm Dan Webster, and during this half of the show, Mary Pat Truthart and I will tackle The Iron Lady, which takes a somewhat unusual means of looking at the career of a famous politician. Wouldn't you say, Mary Pat? Yeah, this film purports to be a biopic of Margaret Thatcher, formerly the Prime Minister of Great Britain. However, the film chooses to focus not on Thatcher's public life, but rather on her personal life. Uh, and it accomplishes that by having Meryl Streep, who plays Margaret Thatcher, at least in her mid and later adult life, reminisce and look back on things that have occurred over the past 60 years. Jim Broadbent plays Dennis Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher's husband. He appears in flashback and is sort of a talks with our modern day Margaret Thatcher, who appears to be in the throes of some sort of dementia and helps her sort of review and assess what transpired during their lives together. I don't honestly know what to say about the Iron Lady. I have so many conflicted perspectives and perceptions of what transpired here. On the one hand, it plays out like King Lear, and although the filmmakers advertise the film that way, as one reviewer said somewhat audaciously, it is kind of this story of duty and home life and so forth. It's also been characterized as a feminist film. And I'm not sure in the end that I see the Iron Lady that way because we have this person who aspires to a public life. She's very upfront with her husband, you know, as a young woman that this is what she wants and intends to do. However, now we see her much later kind of regretting the time that she didn't spend with her family. And that's kind of, you know, a stereotype notion of the homework balance that people in public service, especially maybe women in public service, because they do have 
other responsibilities or gender roles that they're supposed to play might have to grapple with. I thought the most fascinating thing about Iron Lady in some respects was really looking at the fact that there are multiple opportunities for these formal photos when she meets other members of parliament, when she meets other visiting heads of state. And it is striking because she is the only woman in the picture. And so during the 70s and 80s, when she was in power in Great Britain, she was the only notable woman political figure. And that had to be tough going. The two things I wanted to say, you have sterling feminist credentials. I would never question those. But I do want to point out that the movie was directed by a woman, Phyllida Lloyd, and it was written by a woman, screenwriter Abby Morgan. So it's not as if this was a hit job done by some guys on a woman who in her 10 and a half years as the prime minister of Great Britain, did some things that they didn't like. It isn't a political hit job. It isn't a political hack job. It is two women taking what they think is a feminist look. And in terms of feminism, Margaret Thatcher was a conflict all by herself. I mean, here is a woman who fought in a man's world to do the role, and that in itself is pure feminism. However, the policies that she had were not family-friendly, were certainly not women-friendly, so there's a total conflict there. The interesting thing I think about The Iron Lady is not so much what virtually every critic is talking about what the movie doesn't do, it's what it does do. I find it actually refreshing that you take a movie about this famous world leader and you look at the person behind the title. And why not take a look at the waning years of her life when she's looking back, possibly with a sense of regret, possibly that's just wishful thinking on the part of the filmmakers. I think the controversy from a lot of critics about The Iron Lady is that Meryl Streep, let's face facts, she does an amazing performance. And I also thought the young woman who played Margaret Thatcher did an admirable job as well. But I want to ask, and I think this is what other people have said, would we have seen a film about Ronald Reagan? I knew Um, you were going to bring that up. This is that tired old argument. I mean, no, no one has done that about Ronald Reagan. I think possibly because he's not as interesting a character as Margaret Thatcher was. So let's pull back from that and say, why not do this about Margaret Thatcher? Oh, uh, okay. Why this bring up why that not. tired this old is argument? Why not? For an American audience, especially a younger American audience, who might not have lived through her years in power, I think there's not enough about the political side, about the contemporary events of what was happening at that particular time. And so if she were a figure that we knew everything about, I think it would be okay to showcase this different sort of portrait of her. But she's not to the average American viewer. I think you're right on there. And it's the same kind of argument that I've made about a lot of other of these kinds of historical views, particularly, say, Oliver Stone's Nixon. But at the same time, if you want history, read a history book. This is a movie, and I thought it was a lot better than most critics are saying. However, that's enough of The Iron Lady. Finally, we've come to the time of year that most Spokane film fans look forward to. And that is, of course, the week that the city hosts the Spokane International Film Festival. Founded some 14 years ago by the Contemporary Arts Alliance and programmed originally by the late Bob Glatzer, SPIF is currently overseen by director Pete Porter, who joins us now to let us all in on the cool stuff this year's festival has to offer. Hey, Pete, what's the big draw this time around? The big draw for SPIF 2012, I think, has to be the appearance and attendance of Matthew Modine, 
who will be here to screen his short, Jesus Was a Commie, and to talk about his work in film with author Jess Walter at The Bing on Friday the 27th. And he's also doing a benefit screening of Vision Quest at the Garland on Saturday the 28th of January. He was in Vision Quest, which was was filmed in Spokane in 1984, 1985. So what else have you got going? We have 75 films. We have 11 days. 20 20 different countries, would you say? 20 plus countries. I lost count. And I think, if I could go on on a limb and boast a little bit, I think it's the best 11 days of film that Spokane has seen, maybe ever. I'm looking at the lineup, and it's just unbelievable, one film after another. I've been getting films in, and I check them when I see them, and I don't get to see everything until the festival or sometime around the festival. But I've been looking at the films, and I looked at some footage from The Mill and the Cross yesterday, which is a film about art. It's just astonishing When I looked at it, I said, why wasn't this in 3D? And you'll see if you go to it what it's like. It's all about how Peter Bruegel made this painting. It's just mind-boggling. What's the opening night movie, Thursday night, this coming Thursday? Our opening night movie is Natural Selection, which swept the awards at the South by Southwest Film Festival last year. And also a short called High Strung by an animator from Evergreen University, actually, Tommy Thompson. Tommy Thompson will be here and also Robbie Pickering, the filmmaker of Natural Selection, for our opening night and also for our opening night party. When is the World Shorts program? That's on Saturday, The World Shorts is Saturday, January 28th. And I want a particular uh, draw there because it includes one of the films I brought back from Kosovo, Kathimi, or The Return, which is, I think, one of the best films uh, certainly I've seen in the last couple of years. It's bound to be one of the best films of this festival. Well, now it looks as though you're switching up the venues a little bit so that there are some films playing at the AMC, but most of the films will be at the Magic Lantern. What about A Cat in Paris? A Cat in Paris, we're showing at AMC. It's what I would call one of our best picks for family viewing. It's a French film, and it has subtitles. And so when I spoke to the people who made it, they said, you know, probably seven and above, but I watched it. And, you know, if you go with your kid who's seven or under, I'm sure that people will be happy to have you explain what's going on. Sometimes it's not that important, but it's just an incredible looking film. The film itself just to watch is art unfold as animation. Mm-hmm. And I want to put in a pitch for a film that I'm actually hosting on Sunday, January 29th at 11.30 a.m., Crime After Crime, and it's a documentary that basically tells the story of a woman who is involved in the murder of her husband, and it focuses on the efforts of her lawyers um, who are have their own struggles to confront to try to get her released. Mm. Uh, a woman uh, involved in the murder of her husband. Uh, I don't know. I didn't I'm say little, why I'm I was so drawn that to that particular film. But yeah, yeah well. it's a great doc about dealing with issues concerning domestic violence, uh, talking about advocacy, mm-hmm. talking about the prison system, talking about a variety of issues. So I'm okay. happy to be also involved in that. completely entrancing. Right. Of course. Uh, if I could segue into another film that will involve the law that's in the family which was directed by Patrick Wang, who's a New York filmmaker, and it has in it Trevor St. John, who has local Spokane ties. Mm -hmm. But In the Family has been getting just incredible praise from the New York Times and elsewhere. Patrick Wang has been called a filmmaker to watch, and you can come and speak to him at SPIF when he shows his film on Thursday, February 2. In 10 seconds or less, can you tell people how to get tickets? Tickets are available at SpokaneFilmFestival.org, and you will also be able to buy tickets at the Magic Lantern coming up on the 23rd of 
January. Very cool, Pete. Thank you very much. And that's it for this week's chapter of our ongoing movie serial we call Movies 101. If you're interested in listening again or in catching some of our past work, we invite you to listen to our collected podcasts, which can be accessed online at www.kpbx.org. As always, we owe thanks to Patrick Klassen, who produces and engineers the show each week, and we send out thanks to you, our loyal listeners, and invite you back next week, same time, same place, for another exploration into the world of contemporary cinema. You're listening to Spokane Public Radio. <laughs>